This episode is dedicated to Sid Haig, who we just found out died Saturday, the day that we recorded this episode. I think the fact that we spent most of this episode reviewing one of his latest films and talking about his career and we had nothing but great things to say about him really speaks volumes about his performances and him as an artist in general. Sid will be missed. I love movies. Judy fucking fruity. Gosh, I love movies. And here we go. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast. We're here every Monday to bring you the very best in cinematic sinfulness. Matt, how are you doing on this wonderful, sinful Saturday morning? Doing great. Glad to be here. You know, I post. I did a post the other day with uh, Pennywise the Clown coming out of a cup of coffee, and I asked people what mis what what commonly misheard lyric inspired this art, and surprisingly, very few people got it. I guess there's a Nirvana song called Penny Royalty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. It's not that. It's Carly Simon's "You're So Vain." The lyric is "Clouds in your coffee," and I made a Photoshop image of a clown. In one's coffee. What's what is a cloud in your coffee? What is that referring to? I don't know. It's the seventies. People did a lot of drugs back then. I don't think any of it really makes sense. Hmm. When when did Starbucks come out? Was that that they came around in the seventies, right? Were they? I don't think they're that old. I don't, yeah, I guess. I mean, I remember them being really popular in the nineties. Because it, it does seem like maybe a cappuccino reference. You got frothy, foamy clouds oh. in your coffee. Yeah, it could be or acid. Acid. Oh, uh, I, I I don't. You could do that with a lot of lyrics from the 70s. Just be like, they're just talking about acid. I think that's actually accurate. Well, maybe, yeah. I don't think with Carly Simon so much, though. That's right. That's right. Well, I thought we would kick off today's episode with checking in to our Tournament of Terror. In the Dave bracket, we have Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Bam Stoker's or Bram Stroker's? It's Bam... uh, Bram... God damn it. It's Bam Stokers. <laughs> Not Bram Strokers or Bam Strokers. Bam Strokers is a porno made with Bam Margera. It's on the back of CKY3, The Secret Code. You can find it. No, that's not, that's, that's not true, but I, I certainly wouldn't doubt that there is Bam Strokers Dracula, just a porno parody of Dracula. I mean, that probably exists. If someone wants to send us a link to Bam Stroker's Dracula. There's got to be a porno Dracula. They, I mean, they did that porno Batman. Uh, did you see that? Did you hear about that? Uh, I heard about it through uh, my church channels about what yeah, not to watch. That's right. And I swear, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you're following Mortal Kombat lately. The, I, the no. video game, you know, the Mortal Kombat 11 came out and it's awesome. Okay. I mean, it's it, something we kind of thing we should be into with all the all our totally. grindhouse interests, but it's a uh, super brutal, but like one of the um, uh, secret characters or D- DLC characters that they're going to be adding is the Joker. And I, oh, that's cool. dude, have a look. I swear they modeled their Joker after the Joker from the porno parody. He looks <laughs> like he doesn't look like any Joker I've ever seen in comic books or movies, but he looks exactly like that guy. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I listen, that we could have a whole show on on uh, horror porno remakes. Nice, clean Americana fun. Hmm, sounds fun. Matt, let's check in to the Tournament of Terror and stop talking about porno smut. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for our grindhouse after dark right. episode. Yeah, after dark. <laughs> okay, so yeah. it's Bam Stroker. God damn it! <laughs> You've got me mixed up now. It is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Versus the David Bowie starring The Hunger. 
which I, admittedly both sound like porno title, but only one could win. There could be only one, Matt. Dracula won. It was Dracula by a, a large margin, 73 to 14. That is a large margin. Now, now in the Matt bracket, we had uh, the much maligned Evil Dead 2013 versus Hellraiser 2. You have any idea how that one went? I think Hellraiser won. Okay. Well, I will say this. It was a very closely contested battle. In fact, throughout the week, it went back and forth about three times. Oh, wow. Oh, good. However, we have a winner, a clear winner. There's no controversy. um, With a margin of three votes. Wow. And some swing states and the Electoral (laughs) College. All contributed. Um, But Evil Dead 2013 is the winner. Oh, heck yeah. Wow. Going on. That's amazing. So to recap where we're at in our tournament, now that the first round battles have been concluded, moving into our quarterfinal round, on the Dave side, we have The Omen versus The Shining. Kind of like a a good psychic kid versus an evil psychic kid. Yes. Actually, that's very astute. That's right. And then on the Matt side, we have The Thing versus Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I hope The Thing wins. I, I like both of those movies, but The Thing is that's my heart right there. I think what you're going to find in this quarterfinals is that for the most part, we have some pretty classic films going up against each other. So there's no easy, no gimmies. Right. Um, so first round for this week, it'll be The Omen versus The Shining and The Thing versus Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then next week, it will be Hellraiser versus Dracula and American Werewolf in London versus Evil Dead 2013, our dark horse contestant. Well, looking forward to finding out who wins. That sounds cool. Remember every day, check in to our social media, our Facebook, our Instagram to vote. You can vote as many times as you want throughout the week to help determine what is the greatest horror movie of all time. So, Matt, I had an opportunity to go to the movies this week. Are you aware that uh, Rob Zombie's Three from Hell was released this week? Uh, Yeah, I haven't gotten around to seeing it yet, but I'm pretty excited about that one. I really liked uh, Devil's Rejects. That was cool. Well, so they did some, some, some like, a, I guess it was a three-day sort of special theatrical release before it got released on DVD. Um, and I got the opportunity to go to the AMC Theater out in uh, Universal City Walk to see not only Three from Hell, but a double feature of Devil's Rejects followed by Three from Hell. Oh, well, they didn't do a triple feature, huh? They're just doing the, the most... They didn't. They didn't. And, and really, if you think about it, like, House of a Thousand Corpse, although it does set the story up, it does sort of feel like a different film than the other two, doesn't it? Like that's like a highly stylized, kind of almost cartoony, yeah. Although, albeit super creepy and scary and, and violent story, whereas Devil's Rejects and without going into spoilers, this will be a spoiler-free review of Three from Hell. It's it's a bit more grounded in reality, or at least a, a hyper reality. Yeah, Devil's Rejects. That, that's what I liked about it because uh, the um, the supernatural parts. Or whatever they were, the Doctor Satan whole underground lair thing of uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. It it just didn't really tell a good story that made much sense to me. It was uh, so interesting, sort of backstory on that. So the, you know how that that movie got made? Uh, no. So Rob Zombie was talking. Speaking of Universal, Rob Zombie was talking to someone at Universal about doing a themed uh, portion of their Hollywood Horror Nights. You know, so it was going to be sort of a Rob Zombie thing. And the name that he came up with for his, whatever, his, his attraction was House of a Thousand Corpses. And somewhere along the line, someone thought that that seemed like a good movie idea. 
it was really started from just a title, which is a t- you know concept that he had. And because he had directed some of his music videos, they gave him a shot. And so what you saw was, you know, something that sprung not from a story, but really just sort of a cool idea. Which, by the way, how many great Grindhouse films started in that very manner? Because that was his first one, right? He hadn't done any motion pictures. Okay, yeah. So that's pretty cool when you think of it that way. And and it it gave him a little workshop to make these great characters because... Captain Spaulding, that was, I mean, that was pretty fun. I'm not saying it was a bad movie. It was a pretty cool movie. Like, uh, starting off with that silly commercial for Captain Spaulding's uh, little uh, tourist trap place. And then um, right. everything kind of leading into each other. And definitely being kind of like a tribute to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially with the ending. 100%. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. It was pretty fun. But uh, uh, the idea of um, taking him on the road and, like, putting him up against, uh, you know, law enforcement and all that stuff we get to see in Devil's Rejects, that was just really cool. Well, it's funny because, you know, I think in talking about Rob Zombie, this is going to prove to be a divisive podcast. But I, I want to take a moment to sort of look back a little bit at his career and his place in the horror annuals of history. And, you know... I think it was Picasso that once said, good artists borrow from others, great artists steal. And you can certainly see where he stole influence from Texas Chainsaw Massacre in House of a Thousand Corps, but also from his background in music videos, um, from his days in, in White Zombie and Rob Zombie, obviously. And, you know, he grew up in the circus. Mm-hmm. He grew up working as part of a carnival, I think. And so you can see, you talk about the Captain Spaulding and, you know, design and, and the, the commercials. You can see some of that influence, that sort of carny influence in his characters that still exists, whether you like it or not, in, in all of his movies since then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's really good. I, I never thought of it like as a carny thing. Um Kind of echoing back to uh, who was that? Uh, uh, Robbie Robertson of of uh, the band. He made a film called Carney, and it had definitely had a lot of that same kind of like it's it's not so much um, you know that in his film if they were criminals and stuff, but the, I think there's something about the uh, that Carney way of life, you know, where it's uh, it's it's a fringe way of living, and um, so it's cr- like crime is an option, you know, and that's kind of what you get from the Captain Spaulding sure. character, you know, where he's he's got a legitimate business, you know, he makes his money, he's, he's advertising his fried chicken and his house of, you know, roadside attractions, and but at the same time, uh, crime is an option. If he has to steal a car, he can, you know, if he has to have right. a, a gunfight, he can, you know, he's always, he's, right. he's just, it's more it's of a, like- a survivor than anything. Yeah, unlike some of the other characters in his movies, Spalding tends to be more uh, reactionary. Yeah. Like, he will do what is necessary, but he's not necessarily looking to uh, inflict harm for pleasure purposes, even if he does, he maybe enjoys it. Yeah, like, he has a good time getting rowdy and crazy, but he's not like Otis, where he's a straight-up psychopathic killer. So, another interesting tidbit if you didn't know this nearly all the major characters in the house of a thousand corpse devil's reject series are named after groucho marx characters yeah the the uh firefly family thing firefly otis driftwood captain spaulding all groucho marx names that's right um so i read uh, have you read any of the reviews regarding three from hell uh no not yet oh why don't why don't, well, why don't we do one actually you saw it why don't we just do like a little review of it right now yeah so like so i read a couple of things ahead of time uh one from bloody disgusting that wasn't inherently positive although i thought it was a well-written article um talking about how three from hell essentially 
tarnishes a legacy established by the other two films, in particular Devil's Rejects. Mm. And I didn't feel that way. And part of it maybe was because I saw them back to back that I was able to not only remember Devil's Rejects, but really see it and not just remember it through rose-colored glasses. It's a great film. Don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic art house film. It's got some flaws. Um, that being said, and I think I said this on Twitter, Three from Hell feels like a really good B-side to a great album. Okay. Like, it's not really necessary, but I'm not mad it exists. It doesn't it doesn't tarnish the legacy of the album. It's just a nice add on. It's a nice accompanying piece. Um, there's, there's an interesting and strange attraction to these characters in spite of how despicable they are. And I think that makes people uncomfortable. And I think that this movie essentially serves to be like, Hey, remember those guys you really liked? Let's, let's check in on them again. Let's see how things are going in their world. Let's have one last romp. And I think that makes people uncomfortable because there is a desire to follow these really engaging, charismatic characters. And yet, at the same time, you have to ask yourself why you're so invested in essentially psycho killers. Well, so are they like back from the dead in this film? Uh, how does this work? I, I, I mean, don't, you don't have to explain uh, too much a... of it, but I thought they died in the second movie. Well, they, they were certainly shot to hell in the first movie. Uh, in, well, in Devil's Rejects. And, you know, that ending is about as perfect an ending to a movie as I've seen since, say, Vanishing Point. Yeah, it was which great. Which it obviously drew influence on. It, it was a great, a great ending because they, uh, they definitely got what they deserved. And I think that's part of it. It's like you aren't, you're not exactly celebrating these psychopaths and, and, and caring about them, but you, you do see that there's, they're people. But along the way of this whole ride, you know, if it, if it just would have had like a happy ending or I don't know what a happy ending would be, but if they would have survived to go become psycho killers in Mexico or something, uh, I don't think that would have worked as well. But yeah, having them, you know, get executed, basically executed by the cops in the end. Um, right. That was, uh, it was nice to see them get what they deserve, but then at the same time to see them kind of choose that fate. So it was like, they were still in control. They were still doing what they wanted. They got to kind of right. die free. You know, it was kind of cool. Well, every, everything about that scene was... So, this is why it drives me crazy when I see people online say that Rob Zombie is a terrible filmmaker. He he makes his art, and his art is not for everyone. But he that scene, if you believe nothing else about his abilities as a director, that scene is about as well-crafted as it possibly gets. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the high-flying sort of droney... This probably predates drones, but helicopter shots... Of them along a winding, supposedly Texas, but obviously it wasn't shot Texas Highway. Um, playing, you know, Leonard in, the, in a Cadillac playing, right? with the top wasn't down. Was it huh? Leonard Skinner playing? Leonard Skinner playing Freebird, yeah. <laughs> like timed perfectly. You know, these guys. You know, Re Devil's Rejects is about survival, right? Yeah. It's about. It's like you've taken these these horrendous villains from the first movie and you've turned it on its head and you've now made them. You know, you made the 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 um the hunters the hunted which was a really interesting dynamic right and it also saw how good men can be pushed over the line to be maybe worse and more vile and more cruel than even quote-unquote villains could oh be. yeah the sheriff right you're talking about the uh oh right. yeah that was a great character who was that playing him uh william forsyth, forsyth. yeah he's a great actor yeah fantastic so you know Everything about Devil's Reject, even even shooting in 16 millimeter, which gave it bounced back and forth from almost a documentary type yeah. feel 
and then sort of a, a, a cinematic but yet still voyeuristic vibe. It, it has all the trimmings of a really cool art house film. It's great. It's excellent. And so and it's and it's and it's wrapped up in such a neat bow. And and like I said, that, that's about as perfect an ending as you could possibly have to a film. So so fast forward several years and now it brings us to Three from Hell and to your to some of your earlier questions, how do you unravel a perfectly tied up movie? And, and and the reality is is there's no real successful way to do so. You just have to accept that this is an accompanying piece to a masterfully ended film. And if you want to spend a little bit more time with the characters, this is the movie for that. It's fun. It's a bit of a greatest hits of some of uh, the greatest moments from House of a Thousand Corpse and especially Devil's Rejects. Okay. I, you know, it, it it is just a, another stroll with some old friends. Yeah. Doesn't really need to exist, but I'm fine with that, it. I had a good time. It's got some creepy moments. That was kind of the impression I got when they were uh, advertising for it, too, was just, you know, um, uh, that uh, Bill Mosley and Sid Haig and the, and the crew, they just hadn't really got to get together for a long time or do anything, and we all kind of loved those characters, and, you know, and so... It was just like another time to go at it and for us all to have fun with it. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think, you know, like some of the criticism that, say, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood got. Yeah, that makes sense. For, for being for being sort of a, a, a slice of life, a day in the time of style movie. I think this movie has a little bit of that. We're just sort of following the characters. And, and I will say that there are vast moments where – the characters within the story don't really know what their next move uh-huh. is. And it feels like as an audience member, we don't really know what the point of it is. And I think that there is some parallels to do characters like this fit in this world anymore. Okay. okay. Right. It's been, I don't know, like 16 years or something since devil's rejects. Yeah. You know, do these characters fit in the world anymore? And so in a lot of ways, this movie not only exists to be sort of a nostalgic trip, but also ask the question, like, do these, does, does this type of movie even work anymore? Does this fit anymore? Does it have a place any longer? And, and maybe when, by the time you get to the end, you make that decision. Yes, it does. Or, or it's an artifact from a time since past. You know, uh, you, you, you brought up Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Almost made me think of Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Uh, kind of oh, in yeah. a similar way where uh, Robert Rodriguez brought back a lot of his old characters and kind of went through a lot of the similar adventures. But they're... You know, it was a little after the fact. There wasn't really, there was a plot, but it was more like a, um, the kind of plot you would see in a comic book movie, you know, just like an excuse to bring all these characters together right. rather than a, uh, uh, that, the kind of inspired plot of, say, like Desperado or something like that, you know? Right. I mean, even if you look at, say, Kevin Smith's Clerks 2. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't, I, I know that there will be some people, maybe a lot of people who disagree you know, they have this. There's a, there's a sense that bringing back characters, constant remakes or reboots or sequels, somehow waters down uh, an original. And I I disagree with it. I think movies exist in their own merit. And I think that um, you know, does does the the multiple terrible re- sequels of say Friday the Thirteenth make the original any less good? No, no, it doesn't. If you liked the characters and you wanted to spend some time with them again, you'll love this movie. It'd be great. 
I, I think I think I would. I think I'd I'd be excited about it. I, like I, it, I, I, what I want is that feeling again when, um, that when I first started watching Devil's Rejects when the movie came on, and you had, uh, you know, Greg Allman playing, uh, was it Midnight Rider, and boy, talk about good, great artists stealing. Uh, that, that I don't know if you recognize. You, you do okay. You remember they had that armor on, right? right yeah. Man. Did you recognize that from anything? I mean, it it alludes in my to me to. Um... Uh, the good is it the good the bad the ugly no the, uh, Clint Eastwood has the armor under his uh, a little known film that starred Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones it oh, was it was okay. a uh, western shot in Australia called Ned Kelly and oh, it's okay. it, I, remember, I, I know of yeah it. it's like it's it's based on a real man he was this uh, kind of far he was like a farmer and um, him and his brothers when they started fencing in Australia, they had a hard time respecting the property rights of other people and they would steal cattle and they just kind of always see what they could get away with. And they were always running from the law and just kind of being outlaws, even though they, they had a homestead there in the region. And, but, and the, um, the police at the time, it drove them crazy. And they kind of, they kind of became like a local celebrities almost like kind of, um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde type, you know, and, uh, yeah, Billy the Kid. Yeah, like. so, something that you would like, you know, be following and kind of rooting for them, even though they're bad guys, and you know, just driving the the local government crazy. And when the um, police finally came for them, they had this idea that they could win a shootout with the police if they uh, turned all their farm equipment into armor. So, <laughs> so they did. They turned like shovels. How and, did that work out? Uh, I mean, he he was hung in the uh, in an Australian courtroom. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't get shot though. No, they did. They won the shootout, or they didn't win the shootout, but they were got arrested. But uh, yeah, Ned Kelly was hung right. in an Australian courtroom in front of a large crowd. But um, it's it's an iconic uh, a piece of Australian lore of like Ned Kelly and his farm right. equipment armor. And um, so when they started Devil's Rejects and they come out there in that homemade armor, having with their pistols. I mean, that was almost shot for shot, just a modern update of the of the That's same awesome. scene with Mick Jagger. See. And, and I know that some people will balk at these kind of sort of illusions, you know, that, that certain artists, like a Quentin Tarantino is another one of them. You mentioned Robert Rodriguez. He's another one of them. These, genre, these guys who are the neo-genre directors making so many illusions and, and um, borrowing from different film and historical things. But see, I love that stuff because to me, it reminds me, like, do you remember when you were growing up kind of in the punk rock scene? Vaguely. And... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what bands kind of first got you in there, but like for me, it was like bands like Green Day and like Blink One Eight Two and things like that. And I, I'd see those bands or like a AFI, for example, and I'd see the singer wear a, a Baja shirt, uh-huh. and I'd be like, "Huh, what's that?" And I'd go back and I'd check out what Baja was, and I'd be like, "This is fucking amazing, right?" Or whatever you watch, or you see a, a one of the band members wearing a Black Flag shirt, and you go back and you listen to Black Flag. Like that's how you discover stuff. Like I. I Knew the name Ned Kelly passingly, but now knowing that, that this is ties into the scene, like I want to go back and watch that movie and learn more about the history. And I think there's value in that. And I think that maybe that's not always appreciated because there's a sort of premium placed on quote unquote originality that's insincere. Hmm. Well, it's is it originality or is it authenticity? That's that's something uh, kind of a debate there. You know, uh, we have a lot of a lot of people kind of doing regurgitations of things they like. And I think that can be um, 
a source for a lot of criticism. No, that's actually a good point because it brings me to deviate just slightly from Rob Zombie. Um, I also watched yesterday, last night, American Horror Story 1984. Have you watched that yet? Uh, no, I haven't seen the new season yet. I've, I'm pretty um, much, uh, I've, I've watched every season in full, though, that, since the show's been on. Well, American Horror Story for me is like a bad romance. And that's not just a pun because Lady Gaga was on a couple seasons. Uh-huh. It's a show that has this uncanny ability to lure you in to believe that it's going to be a coherent, scary season only for every time it fall right off the rails. And I think that in the last couple of seasons, it's completely given up on the idea that it's meant to be scary. Oh, you I know? don't know. I don't know. Uh, they, they, they had some eerie Apocalypse? stuff going on. Uh, Apocalypse, every once in a while, they'll have a season that just, it, yeah, you're right. It just falls off the rails and it's just a big train wreck. I, I think... Season two might have also been a little bit of that. Where uh, I, see, was, I, um, I liked season two, even though it was it sort was of a, good, a, but it was a like kitchen sink. Of exactly, ideas. Nazis, aliens, the devil, um, right. serial killers. It just had everything in it, and uh, tying all that together in the same world, you start to feel like you're watching a cartoon rather than a uh, right. like, like some kind of weird theme rather than an actual horror story. But no, right. I, I do think there's been one, uh, the Roanoke season was a really cool horror concept that I hadn't seen before. That was great. I started to watch that. I can't get into the sort of a film within the film documentary. It kind of reminds me of a Halloween. What was it? Was it Resurrection? With mm. Buster Rhymes. Remember that one? No, I didn't watch that one. Yeah. Well, same kind of concept. But sort of now like, that I, I know Buster Rhymes is, is in it, I'm going to watch it. That sounds cool. <laughs> uh, so, but like, you know, I enjoyed Colt, for example. I thought Colt was fantastic. I thought it was very was timely. One. Yeah. Coming yeah. right off the heels of the election. Oh, yeah. When it started with all that Donald Trump stuff, uh, that was that was fantastic. And then talking about 4chan and all that, it was. Right. Yeah, that but, was a really well done one. And, um, and, and granted, I don't want to judge a season based on its first episode, but you mentioned certain, you know, the difference between originality, authenticity, um, borrowing from from great sources and just sort of pale copying, pale comparisons. Uh-huh. The first episode of H, uh, AHS 1984 feels like a cartoon. It feels like the apex of the most cartoonish moments of American Horror Story all rolled into one. Well, it's it... meant to be a, uh, it, you know, it's meant to, to, to draw on the themes of those like 80s slasher movies like yeah. Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp and they've got everyone in 80s garb, but... Yeah, I've, seen, I've just... seen the trailer all like aerobics and camping and uh Camping uh, is appropriate dancing. because it's campy. Yeah, but give it time because who knows where they're going with this. That's the thing about this show is seasons are like what, 13 episodes long, something like that. They're always really long. Yeah. So, um, you know, the first well, he, one might be kind of this looked way too familiar, uh, just, you know, hitting with the uh, the 80s thing is big now, you know, Stranger Things, all that. But who knows where they're going to take it? Possibly. And I'll, I, I'll, I think I'll this, this is a show that they've shown us over and over this show that, like, by using the same cast uh, in different roles every season, sometimes in multiple roles in the same season, Right. Uh, these guys have turned themselves into such a little band of misfits, man. I mean, they are willing to do some strange things, do strange characters, strange roles. It's always real imaginative. And I feel like there's a lot of, uh, you know, just like a lot of cool creative input from all the different people working on the show. So I, this one might surprise you. 
it may it may like i said i don't want to judge it off a single episode but it my initial reaction to it was this is going to be a show that spends more time kind of mocking the those 80s slasher films versus like if you watch scream for example or even um to a lesser extent i know what you did last summer which also sort of drew homage from those 80s slasher films they did it in a sort of lovingly way they took those tropes and they turned them on their head in an, in an interesting fashion right uh-huh. this feels like a cover band this feels like a bad cover band and the reason i bring it up is to draw parallels with rob zombie say house of a thousand corpse or some of his other homages wherein when rob zombie borrows from other material it feels like he genuinely is a fan of those things like he genuinely loves and appreciates and honors like those influences that he's drawing from not just saying hey remember how dumb this was let's let's kind of see it in a schlocky way and and laugh at it you know and mm-hmm. we've talked about this before with other horror you know a lot of indie horror tends to, to fall into that trap yeah 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 where they don't really have a lot of respect for what they're doing they just uh it's an easy thing to get made and it's an easy thing to sell because uh you know i i, I like i there was a film terrifier that came out uh, a couple of years ago or, th- or last right. year have you seen that one uh no i haven't i've seen the images of it a lot though it's it's uh just this like scary clown killing people there's i mean there there's a couple of like cool original things they do in it but for the most part it's just that it's just a scary clown killing people and right you know and they just put him on the cover of the movie and you just know that that can sell a film and yeah, uh right. but there's nothing real yeah there's nothing real genuine or you know unique about it that you need to see this well, movie right and we spent a lot of time last week talking about friday the 13th and the history of it and how that was so relevant to the time this sort of puritanical concept that like if you drink you do drugs you have sex you have you indulge in carnal pleasure that the boogeyman was going to come and and punish you for it right uh-huh and it draws from some historical background and it drew from the, the Reagan era politics of just say no to drugs, you know, no to rock and roll. You had the, what was it, the PMRC trying to put, ba- you know, l- warning labels on albums and you had Judas Priest going to trial and the, the Night Stalker. And there's a lot to draw from that was very relevant then. And again, if we're just going to say, hey, remember when? Mm-hmm. I guess that's fine. I think there's a more interesting way that you could do a 1984-styled show and make it relevant to today's topics, and maybe they will. Maybe they'll get there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, think about the uh, year that they're calling it, 1984. Right. W- what else is 1984? The book right. by George Orwell. Could be. I mean, could maybe be. there's – yeah, maybe there's going to be a lot more tie-ins than that. Maybe they're tricking us right now with a – you know, hey, remember the '80s kind of thing that they they think you know, we think they're doing, but who knows? 1984 could represent a lot of different things, and um, it's, very, it's also a great possible. great album by Van Halen. That's uh, true. A noteworthy ad campaign from Apple. Uh, oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> you know, where they're um, it was like all all the uh, it's a weird one. It's like all the people are in this big kind of gothic factory thing, industrial dark world and they're watching a giant talk big brother style talking head on the screen uh, and they're okay. all kind of 
you know, kind of mindless zombie people. And then this man runs in with a hammer and throws it through the screen. And somehow that represents Apple computers. They're going to change the world so that 1984 won't become 1984. That was like the slogan. I mean, well, listen, 1984, well, you could argue it has happened. I mean, government's probably listening to us right now. So if they are listening, we appreciate the support. Thank you. Yes, thank you. But I find it interesting that a show like American Horror Story 1984 is is probably for for a lot of fans going to get a lot of praise for it sort of looking backwards. Mm-hmm. And yet Rob Zombie is so divisive as a figure in horror films. I I don't know. I'm not I mean I haven't seen the kind of criticism you're talking about and I haven't seen American Horror Story get the opposite of that. They, they, they I mean maybe uh, I could I could see mainstream critics definitely having a problem with Rob Zombie because he's a little niche, you know, just a little or niche, a little bit niche. He's like, um, it's hot rods and uh, fast time girls and 50s style, uh, you know, troublemaking teens. You know, it's like that kind of uh, um, aesthetic. And you, if you're not if you're not kind of into that stuff already it can be a little corny i think in some ways yeah i think you know we've talked a lot about the especially within the horror genre the need for um something different something weird something to sort of break up the monotony and i don't know if three from hell does that but i definitely feel like some of rob zombie's older films have um you know house of a thousand corpse came out what in the early mid 2000s right around the time that we were coming out of the screams and i know what you did last summers and moving into the hostels and the uh, human centipedes of the world, the extreme violence. I thought he did his in a way that was far more interesting and and palatable. Uh, And I think that, uh, you know, some of his his follow-up films have really pushed some boundaries. I mean, we've talked often about Lords of Salem. Well, I mean, Lords of Salem is great. But I I would say for me at the time, House of a Thousand Corpses, the only redeeming thing I thought in that film that was original and cool was Captain Spaulding. I did. Really? I didn't like Otis. I certainly didn't like um, Baby. What, what, Rob Zombie's wife. Oh, what's her name? Yeah, Baby Firefly. Yeah, I certainly didn't like her. Uh, the whole freak show of the family and stuff was was kind of cool. It was kind of weird. Um, but the and the the characters, Rain Wilson and all the teenage, you know, college kids that get, or I guess they weren't teenagers, but all the college kid age kids that get you know victimized and stuff. It just. It didn't really do anything for me. And then when it, like, the big crazy twist at the end, when it devolves into this, like, supernatural underground weird cult thing with this Dr. Satan monster, uh, it just seemed, like, really convoluted. And uh, I didn't get it. And, and I yeah, I didn't think it was anything. I didn't think, and it was very disturbing, his films, you know, uh, all the... uh, all the t- human taxidermy and torturing the girls. It's, it was, um, it just, and, and I felt like all the, the disturbance, the, the disturbing elements weren't, uh, justified. You know, that's, that's the thing. Sure. Like I, I had pitched to you this week that we might do something called like, uh, the disturbing films we love because we're talking about some kind oh, of, yeah. distur- and, and, um, I was going to talk about what, well, what, what, what I, what that was all about was, when you have disturbing elements in a film, like the kind of stuff you see in House of a Thousand Corpses, you know, right. uh, a man wearing another man's face, uh, girls being tortured. Uh, that's Devil's Rejects. No, that's uh, 
He also that, does. That's, oh that's yeah, her mom? dad. He come, okay. He says because uh, her dad comes to save her at the house. Remember? And he oh right. He comes downstairs right, right. and hey, he's your daddy's here, honey. And you know, and and that was pretty messed up because it was uh it's not something you normally see in a horror film where like when people are trapped in a place and they can't get out that somehow a family member from like another town arrives and becomes a victim too. Right. And so that was kind of original, but still it was gross. It was just a lot of disturbing things. And, and my point to the whole idea was that disturbing films have to earn that they have to earn their right to show you all that messed up shit. And what I, right. What it brings it makes me think of is pan's labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro's okay. masterpiece, pan's yeah, labyrinth, great film. Great film. There is some very disturbing stuff in that film, and it's also what's what's unique about it for a horror film is the disturbing stuff doesn't really come from the monsters or the supernatural elements. It comes from this uh, her stepfather, who's this military figure and this right. uh, Francisco Franco uh, fanatic that just wants to hurt and kill anyone that's a rebel, and his his methods and his psych his psychology is just so cruel. And so happy about it the whole time, and the the stuff you watch him do, the way he murders people and tortures people, it um, man, it stays with you. And it's just if it, if that was just a military film uh, in which you saw things like that, it, I think it would be would not be something I like. But because all of that disturbing stuff helps create the real danger for this of this world that this girl is in. But in the, then at the same time, there's all this weird magical stuff going on. It earns the right to show you these cruel things right. and, and to mess with your head in that way. And that's what I'm saying. I felt, I felt, I think, I do think that that would be definitely House of a Thousand Corpses, some major criticism and some scenes of uh, American Horror Story too. Uh, I mean, the first season had a, a school shooting in it and uh, right. like from, you know, first person almost like showing you everything going on and. And I was pretty mad at them for that because I kind of felt like, you know, even though the first season was good, they certainly hadn't earned the right to take me there. That level of gravity has to be earned well, and it's hard to get that kind of, I think, uh, you know, credit I, to do yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I think the problem with that scene was not so much – well, it was that it never went anywhere. Like that scene doesn't really lead you anywhere. In, the shooting in American you know, in Horror the end Story? Of the day, yeah, yeah. Like, like there's no payoff to it other than establish a trope. Like – that character is this trope. I I and felt like they were just trying to be the ones that did it. You know what I mean? Like, no, like I mean, we maybe, took it there. I, we showed that. You know, because it's American I, horror, and what's the most horrible thing in America? Our our which, shootings, so which a, nobody else seems to have but us. I don't. I don't think it was that. I, I don't. I think that what American Horror Story always tries to do is check all the boxes associated with horror. Yeah. And 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 I think a major criticism of the show is that it does it um, with too much frequency and not enough consistency uh-huh. throughout each season. And so I think they just they were looking for a way to make a teenage character evil, and that's what they came up with. And it's relevant. And you got to remember the, when the, the thing first is, when, by the time when we the, we wait, learned all that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But but, but then the, when the first American Horror Story came out we weren't getting school shootings at the same frequency that we get now, you know, like they were really drawing from Columbine, which had been like 10 or 15 years previous to that. I mean, they still happen, but they weren't nearly like now in the last five years when you get like school shootings all the time. It's like school shooting season is back. Yeah. It, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
But uh, that's true. But we'd had enough of them that it it definitely felt like something that I didn't want to see portrayed in a film. I didn't think it was edgy or cool or weird. And and, um, it, it also... If you're going to portray something like that, you've got to do it skillfully enough that you don't glorify it. And I think they made it look and, and really they, cool. They like, definitely made it look really yeah. cool. I and mean, there are a lot of people. I mean, they borrowed the, the tattoos from Zombie Boy in his recollection of the scene. I mean, they definitely stylized the hell mm-hmm. out of it. Um, you know, like, you're right. You're right. When, it, when, you, when you push the envelope, I mean, horror is about pushing the envelope, either psychologically or visually, um, disturbingly. And. It is something that has to be, or- and I said I definitely see your point on the House of a Thousand Corpses. But you got to remember, this is also a first film out the gate. Yeah, that's true. And it's a little bit like, hey, this might be my only shot. I'm gonna throw up all these things in, and I think from that movie to say Devil's Rejects, you saw a real like, like maturation, like a real maturity mm-hmm. and growth in his filmmaking skills, and like that that face. Like I don't, I don't even remember until you mentioned it, the face off scene from House of a Thousand Corpses. But I definitely remember it from devil's rejects where he he puts the man's face on the woman yeah he cuts off lou temple's face and he puts it on his his fiance or his wife and <laughs> she goes running out yeah. of the building and then, you know but um, yeah but and that's the that's the payoff because the the face on her is disturbing yeah but you it's so disturbing and captivating that it sets you up it's a magic trick right it sets you up for the twist which is that she gets hit by a truck and you never, you never see that coming because all you can focus on is this really intense, captivating moment where she's running wildly with her husband's face on her face. Yeah, that was that that scene of a woman, yeah, a woman running with another person's face, just in complete breakdown, terror, madness, and just a truck. It was like that was just a little bit of like pure chaos right there applied to 16 millimeter film. And that was, that's 100%. the kind of stuff that is really cool. And uh, yeah, he, I, cause like I say, man, Captain Spaulding was the only thing I liked about house of a thousand corpses really. So it was the only thing that brought me to devil's rejects. I mean, I saw All that right. that came out and I said, Oh, a new Captain Spaulding film. I want to see what okay. they, and this one has a lot more of him. Cause that was, that was kind of one of my things that I thought after seeing house of a thousand corpses was, you know, if they would have had more of that Spalding character, that would have been a pretty good movie. And now here's the sequel, and it's he's one of the main main guys, you know, throughout the entire right. film. And also having him as a sympathetic character, because he's not a villain. He's only involved because his daughter is in danger. He's a father. Right. Very cool twist, man, to make him her dad and put and ha- just have him in this situation. Because, you know, even, even the face-off scene you're talking about, Otis says, what right. do we do with her? And Spalding says, just leave her. Because he's, right. we, we don't need to do that psycho stuff. What are you doing? You know, it's not important. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Don't do that. Yeah, he has a big problem with it. But at the same time, his daughter is one of these people. And, uh, you know, and her mother was insane. And so he just is in, he's in this world, like it or not, because of a family tie. And speaking of family ties, you get to meet people like his brother, uh, her uncle, and, and, uh, go and see a, a whole other side of this whole, like uh, where it's, it's really wild because it's almost like it's a whole crime family and right. the house of a thousand corpses angle was just the, the, the really low down bottom of the barrel members of the family. You know, we all have that side. Right, of, we right. all like have that side of our family, you know, those distant relatives. And um, that was, 
that was what you saw. But if you branch out, you can see it's actually just a whole bunch of renegade people that live their own way and are interesting and, and cool and fun bandit characters, basically. And so it was right. a really well, cool and scene. also murderous psychopaths. Who, well, no, that's what I'm saying. That's that's what I'm saying. Like the Firefly whole part of it, like the House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's that lowest part of the, you know the lowest common denominator of this whole like big family of like bandits and renegades and you know and and that's what you see when you go and you meet the uncle and all the people that, that there that um they're not all like murderous psychopath monsters. A lot of them are just kind of you know uh, people who just do things their own way. Yeah, when you think of filmmakers like a Rob Zombie or say like a Tim Burton and you know, what inspires them, a lot of times it's because they grew up feeling like outsiders, like misfits. Yeah. And I think that a film, in particularly Devil's Rejects, as as you're sort of alluding to, like expanding the universe to where there's this family that exists, but they're just random sort of low life bandits, you know that 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 have no other home but each other. So they're all brothers and cousins and sisters, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's it's it, a community. Well, it's almost like too of, like a one bad marriage brought that serial killer element into it because it was a uh, Mama right. Firefly was kind of like the and and in Otis, you know, they were kind of like the ones that were. Uh, well, Otis is an adopted person, right? Exactly. Too. Yeah, he he's not actually he has no blood to anyone, so it's like um. But he was you know, raised by that. Uh, evil he was raised by yeah. them yeah cutter cutter doctor uh, captain spaulding found him and basically uh gave him over to, to mama firefly to raise along with her husband is that like a part that explains um, that's explained in a three from hell or something uh no i think it's in um uh, i don't know i got online yeah. and i read some so i forget what's in the film and what's from online but but essentially mama firefly and cutter aka dr spaulding had baby yeah and mama firefly had uh, tiny and um, uh, what's the what's the uh, Tyler Maine plays him. He's the guy in the armor. What was his character? Oh, I name? can't remember, but yeah, he was pretty great. Yeah, you know, he has she has him and and uh, she's got a husband there who works for Doctor Satan yeah. and like is part of that cult. So like so like Doctor Spalding's tie to the Firefly family is that he's got a, a kid with Mama Firefly, yeah. and then he finds Otis and sort of hands him over like, hey, he, let them raise you. And then, you know, then it grows from there. Like, so you're right. So it's essentially like in a very weird and twisted way. What these stories are is a sense of community amongst weirdos. Oh, yeah, totally. It's awesome. I mean, like when uh, it, when they go to the uncle's house and I think he even says something to Otis, like, are you still a, you know, a little bastard or something? And Otis gives him like two middle fingers and you can almost yeah. see like, you know, 30 years before a 12 year old boy doing the same thing at Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? It's right. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, it was really good. It was, that's a great film. It, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's one that just continues to grow in people. And, and uh, it's just, a, I, I loved, I mean, I loved how uh, devil's rejects, like it was, it was yeah. just a perfect horror adventure for me. It was really cool. And so I, I don't know. I'm hope that's, and that's what I'm hoping that, um, three from hell does when I go see it. Cause I, I, I want to see that world expanded more. I see that the cast has gotten bigger. You know, I want to see a lot of the old people return. I want to see like some new fa- I saw that. Uh, what is it? Richard Brake? Is that his name? Richard. Yeah. Brake, yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. And uh, so he's going to be in it. And that, I'm excited about that. He, he was the best part of 31. I thought I didn't see 31. Um, I heard it. I heard I don't it know was if pretty like bad. It. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's just, I I enjoy I, you know what I've enjoyed all of Rob Zombie's films on some level, you know, 
um, I appreciate what he does as a filmmaker. I, I appreciate the chances that he takes. And so um, it's not my favorite. It's probably it's probably dead last in terms of my favorite films uh-huh. of his. But uh, it's in, it, you know it has its own merits. And Richard Brake is fantastic in it. So he's he's a welcomed addition to the cast. Yeah, he's really cool. I want to see more of him. He's just a, he's an interesting man. He's always I loved him in uh, Mandy. Uh, didn't really get game of thrones game of thrones you know that role was more of just kind of standing there looking menacing but (laughs) yeah yeah definitely uh well anyway um so we've we've kind of done a a lengthy review here and talk about rob zombie and uh uh, so but we usually have a rating system when we review films yes yes so what do you think so um, uh on the tusk system of one through five i'm gonna give uh i'm gonna give three from hell Appropriately, three tusks. Three tusks for the three. All right. Yeah, that's not bad. I think not it's bad. uh, it's it's an enjoyable, it's an enjoyable ride. I like the characters. I find them fascinating, and I I'm happy with seeing a bit more of them, even if it kind of didn't, wasn't necessary. It's kind of like when you watch um, when you go watch a band play and they go into their encore and they they play their big hit, but then they play like two more songs that are like maybe a little deeper cuts. It's still you know. I don't, I don't mind it because I'm not ready to go yet, but it could have ended perfectly right after, like, you know, Crazy Train. <laughs> okay. All right. But it's good. It's a fun time. I think you'll enjoy it for the most part. Um, really interesting to hear, get your feedback when uh, when you watch it and, and all is said and done. Great. Well, um, I think we've pretty much wrapped that one up, so let's see what's in the mailbag today. Questions from the Corrupt. Yes, mailbag. And we have Ophelia Bone Shatter, who does our outros every week, is going to read us questions from the Crypt. Oh, cool. Okay. Sam V. Blair asks, what are your thoughts on the Exorcist or the Omen? Oh, Exorcist for me. It's a lot more fun. It's just like, uh, yeah, I just like it. It's more fun. It's more exciting and weird and you just see crazier shit. See, The Exorcist doesn't do much for me. I mean, I enjoy it, but to me, it's Omen all the way. The Omen is scary to me. And not because of the little kid, because the 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 devil presence in The Exorcist feels more authentic to me. In the first movie, he's like this de- this ancient demon that has existed in like multiple cultures, you know, like you know, the the scene where uh, the character gets beheaded because a, a glass panel slides out the back of a truck. I mean, that's just like some really that's eerie true. moments yeah. in The Omen. Whereas The Exorcist is like cool and fun to watch, but it it, ne- it never really scared me. Whereas The Omen, even to this day, is like... Like Exorcist, I just felt like you had like a... Like you're in a small room and you just got a wild horse like tied around the neck to the wall and he's just going crazy, all pissed off and everybody's trying not to get kicked. Like it was just, it was pretty cool. But, but I do, I kind of have a problem with both movies because they kind of, um, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, well, I mean, if there was an exorcist, like a person who that's their job in real life, that's essentially a scam right. artist in my opinion. Uh, so both films are just, the concept of a devil is kind of stupid, but, uh, but, but I'm okay with that. It's, it, you know, it just, it's that thing, you know, where yeah. we're like, we have the mainstream religion of America, you know, we have the culture we have. So the, the supernatural horror films are going to react to it in that way. I, but on, on that note, I actually exactly. saw someone get demon possessed once. 
Uh, well, mm-hmm. I mean, not really, but really, yeah. I was at church camp. And, <laughs> it was um, a... Yeah. Oh, and okay. uh, they would... We, when you go to church camp when you're a kid, it's it's mostly just water slides and go-karts and shooting bows and arrows right. at targets and... S- smoking weed, having sex, being killed by a slasher. <laughs> that might be going on, but I wasn't cool enough for any of that. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, at night, though, they have like a actual like church session, but it's like, you know, it's just for kids, you know, so it's a lot more fun with a lot of music and dancing and it gets like really crazy, like kids speaking in tongues, laughing hysterically. Oh. I mean, stuff gets, it gets pretty, pretty out there. And, um, there was this kid in our bunk that was kind of a trouble, you know, he, he wasn't from our church, but, uh, he was from a, uh, like a church in like Jackson or something. And Lake Jackson, I think is where they were from, but he was kind of a troublemaker. And, um, he, we, I just remember hearing hey, someone's demon possessed, someone's demon possessed over there. I mean, and this is a big, like Coliseum size thing. It's right. many churches. It's a, it's, a, it's a big camp. And so we ran over to the other side of the, of the, um, Coliseum area, the, the, the room it's, I don't call the right thing to say, but uh, just just a big it's it's like a music venue size thing. So anyway, right, we ran, right. ran over to the other side of it, and um, there was that kid from my bunk, the the bad kid, and he was like on the ground laughing like the Joker or something, or like the like a, it, he looked nuts, man. His eyes were all huge, and his and he was like laughing and going crazy and banging his head against the concrete, and uh, people were like holding him down and praying and stuff, and. Uh, my friend Jason, he was a skateboarder that I was hanging out with. He kind of, he he kind of gives me a wink and he gets down and he starts doing this like, uh, remember Sting, the wrestler Sting? He had that scorpion yeah. leg leg thing. Scorpion death, uh, scorpion <laughs> yeah. leg lock. So he starts doing that to the to the possessed oh, kid, geez. man. And he's like looking at me like, yeah, this is awesome. Do you have your camera? And I'm just going. And then nobody's paying attention to him because they're all trying to pray the demon away from this kid. But right, <laughs> you know. So I, I mean, I, I can't. I honest, uh, honestly, I, even at the time, I was like, yeah, that guy's not demon possessed. That's super dumb. And y'all need to like you know, probably call the police or some, somebody that's trained to handle whatever this is, but, but, uh, an ambulance or something. Uh, they, they ended up fucking a, a, a Ritland. Well, they, they ended up, they, they did call an ambulance because he actually, he attacked a girl and, and pushed her oh. down. She hit her head so hard. They had to call an ambulance. So then I, I'm wondering if maybe it might've been something where they, there was an argument and he attacked her and then saw that she got hurt and was just like, I'm demon possessed. Woo. <laughs> you know, he, he, I have an he excuse. Could just be, yeah, man. I mean, he could just be like a dark kid. Yeah, who knows? But, uh, it was it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But uh, as a kid, but um, no, I didn't get the presence of of an evil spirit near me, and and there was certainly no projectile vomiting or heads turning around or floating or anything like that. But but the grown ups had a great time praying and fighting a demon. They thought they were really and that's, doing that's something what's cool. the matter. That's that's what counts. it's about. Fun. All right. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. Adventures in Plastic Land asks, should they remake the Blade trilogy? Yeah, I, there are they are making a new blade, and here's my general feeling on it: is the 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 blade trilogy exists. Um, if they want to make a new movie based on the source material and take it in some different direction, cool. Maybe it'll be interesting. Maybe it won't be. You never know. But uh, generally speaking, like I don't think they should remake that trilogy. I think that um, you know characters in mythology have stories that go on forever potentially, and as long as it's engaging and it's interesting. Fair play to them. Let's see what they can do that's new and fresh. All right. Sarah Shapcott asks, what horror or thriller would you like to see remade and what should never be remade? Oh, um, I'd like to see The Gate remade. That was a pretty fun 80s movie. It was 
kids were playing records backwards and Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons and all kinds of fun little cult stuff and summoning demons. Uh, I think we could we could do that again. That'd be pretty cool. I uh, I don't think you should make anything remake it, but but feel free to steal some ideas. Oh well, cool. I thought we had to have and, an uh, answer. I thought we. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, this is my answer. My answer is I I just I don't I don't have a movie that I think needs to be remade. Other than I think if there are some ideas in a movie that wasn't executed well, rather than remaking the whole movie, just take those ideas and make your own movie. All right, then why don't why don't hopefully yours will be better. Why don't you answer the second question of that the second part of that question then? What shouldn't be remade for uh, ever and ever? What which one is like then definitely don't, think, don't touch I, it. I I don't think there's there's anything that is uh, precious. I don't think that there's anything that is sacred. I think that art is art and if you want to remake something or you want to reimagine something then sure go right ahead and if it's good enough then it will stand on its own merit. Dave, like for example, Evil Dead 2013. Give a movie and title. It, what? Give a movie title. No, no. Do you, with you, you, this is, this is, my this is not the presidential debates. You, we need you. No, moving on. <laughs> All right. Martin Shapcott asks, do you think the excessive amount of remakes is good for cinema or is it a sign of its demise due to lack of ideas? Do I think the number of remakes is good for cinema? All these are remakes. It's like the same question over. Well, no, I don't think it's good for cinema. Yeah, I think it's obvious that people are uh i don't even think it's like people are out of ideas i think it's just that you there's an algorithm now that shows that how much that money can be made based on how much money a film made when it was originally released uh right i mean it's got to be something like that right they just kind of go hey here's here's another one that you know shows we can make this much profit so let's remake it that's 100 percent it look there there is no shortage of original ideas in quote-unquote hollywood there are hundreds, if not thousands, of original, cool movies that come out every year. It is our obligation as the audience to go and watch those movies, support them, so that it makes money, so that someone says in this new algorithm, hey, that movie made money. Let's do more original That's right. ideas. It's a business, um, folks. It's just a business. Daniel Smith asks, what movie is worse, Tusk or The Room? The Room is worse, obviously. The Room is worse. Tusk is amazing. Yeah, come on. It's a fantastic film. Tusk is made by an actual filmmaker with experience and <laughs> talented actors. And, it, and it's, that's yeah, right. It's obviously And it's better. weird. Look, it's weird, and maybe it doesn't always work in every part of it, but it is a true film in every set. It's a competently shot and written film yeah. that took some wild, wild chances it's, it's and, not just some millionaire's vanity project. Why would you even ask us that? Who asked us that, Dave? Who? Where did that? That's right. Where did that I question come from? What? But you're be, you're you're gonna go to the gulags, okay? <laughs> you gotta go. You gotta go to the cellar for that question. You're in timeout. All right. Tusk is a fantastic film. Go watch Tusk. Go watch Three from Hell. I, I'm ups, I'm upset. I don't want to do any more show today. Let Let's get out of here. We're done. You lose. Good day, sir. You're listening to the Grindhouse podcast on the Grindhouse of a Thousand Corpses Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify.